0: Amen and thank you men. If you will open your Bibles to the Gospel of John, the Gospel of John chapter 20, we're going to read that that chapter in its entirety in just a moment. Again, uh, the Gospel of John chapter 20, we'll begin reading in verse 1. We have all bemoaned the current realities, uh, particularly as they pertain to this particular day, that we are saddened that uh, we cannot gather uh, together as uh, the body of Christ. And one of the things that I have prayed through this particular crisis is that God would use this uh, to uh, make His people uh, cherish the privilege of gathering of, of assembling on, on the Lord's Day, weekend and week out, uh, that they would begin to cherish that more, more and to not take it for granted and be more faithful in the days ahead. And my prayer, again, as it pertains to, to Easter, Easter, uh, like the other holidays, uh, such as Christmas or Thanksgiving, or pick any calendar that you, or any uh, holiday that you want to think about on the calendar. It has become an opportunity uh, for uh, commercial gain uh, that uh, uh, Christmas is a tremendous uh, uh, commercial season and and Easter is as well. And so the commercial aspects of Easter have largely been lost this year. Uh, People aren't buying Easter clothes. People aren't buying uh, Easter baskets and bunnies and candies and things as as they normally would. People can't gather to do their Easter egg hunts. And my hope is, with all of that stripped away from us, that God's people, and maybe even those that are not God's people, those that are unbelieving, would come to realize that the whole truth behind the celebration is, is the reality of a resurrected Savior. That all the things, all the pretty colors, and all the things that we kind of associate with Easter, they point to a a meaning, to a a truth, to a reality. They they point to a man who lived upon this earth 2,000 years ago, and he lived a sinless life, and then he very willingly went to a... Roman cross and hung there in atonement for our sin and again we know all of that to be true that God accepted that sacrifice because he was raised from the dead on that very first Easter Sunday and we live in light of that great truth and so with those things being said I want us to think about this great truth that indeed as the first witnesses to the empty tomb proclaim he is risen we still have those three words upon our lips and so read with me if you will from the gospel of john chapter 20 and we're going to begin in verse 1 now on the first day of the week mary magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. And then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But I go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he said these things to her. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. And if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God and by believing you may have life in His name. Pray with me. Father once again we thank you for that which is true that which conforms to historical reality. That the tomb that Jesus was buried in after he died on the cross was left empty on the Sunday morning after his death. And Lord, that you had raised him from the dead. And Lord, that we are to live in light of that great victory over sin, death, and the grave, that we are to proclaim it until the day that we see him uh, split the skies, Lord. I pray that we would be found faithful. I pray that we can communicate your truth here today. God, that your people would be changed by it. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, as we go to the Gospel of John, uh, John, as he concludes chapter 19, describes for us the uh, burial process that uh, uh, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea uh, engaged in to place Jesus in that tomb that had belonged to Joseph, that new tomb that had never been utilized uh, previously. And so as we close out chapter 19, we should feel a, a sense of the weight of the loss and of the grief for those who knew and believed in Jesus, those who had spent time with him and heard his message, and in him they had placed their hope even to the point of leaving that which they loved behind for the sake of following after Him. They spend that Saturday in in deep despair, in deep grief, in in great loss. So many times, we want to quickly begin the celebration, to move past the experience of tragedy and loss and suffering and just begin to move toward this idea of celebration, this idea of feeling better. But I think for a moment we need to put ourselves in the sandals of those disciples for just a moment and and think with them about what has happened. What, what has transpired? Have, ha, what, what is this business about Jesus? Is, was he deceived? Or did he deceive us? What, what have we done by aligning ourselves with him? And so as the story picks up again in, in chapter 20, we're told first of all of some women. And each gospel account, each of the four gospel accounts tells us that The first visitors to the tomb were women. And just a bit of an aside, I'll say more about this in a moment. One of the reasons that we know that the gospel accounts are true, that they're accurate, that they're reliable, is the fact that the gospel accounts tell us that instead of these disciples being bold and courageous enough to go visit the tomb of their friend, that these ladies went. Women at that time were not even considered responsible enough to testify in court. But yet the Bible tells us they were the first to go because they were. It's an accurate account of what transpired on that first Easter, first resurrection Sunday morning. And so his tomb is empty. We're told that Mary goes, Mary Magdalene, and she is a lady in whom uh, Jesus had ministered and had... Has recorded, uh, cast out seven demons from Mary Magdalene. And so we can imagine that she is one that had been forgiven much, that she understood the, the depth of what it meant to be in bondage to sin. And Jesus Christ had set her free. We can't imagine the amount of devotion that this dear lady had for Jesus Christ. In the Bible, particularly maybe a place like 1 Corinthians 13, you see these uh, three things linked together, faith, hope, and love. And we could kind of debate and philosophize about which is the greatest, faith, hope, or love. Well, it seems like the object of their faith had been destroyed. Their hope had been misplaced. But let me tell you, the love of these ladies, the love of these ladies had endured. Why did she go? Well, she didn't go because, hey, Jesus is about to be raised from the dead. I want to be there. I want to be the first witness. I I want to get in on this thing very quickly. No. She didn't go because of faith or hope. She went because of her great love. One one song that we don't sing very much in the church anymore is is more love to thee, O Christ. More love for thee. And I often think that that's, that's a bit of a tragedy because I can just say in my own life, well, maybe to some extent I have great faith and, and I have a, a secure hope and that I know that when I die I'm going to go be with Jesus. But sometimes you know what's lacking in my life? is love. This deep love that motivates us toward obedience. Our love for the Lord Jesus Christ. So how appropriate for us to sing and to pray. More love to Thee. O Lord. And so, despite all of the fears that had been shared among these disciples, and I'm sure as they were gathered together, they were speculating about what was going to happen to them. I mean, they're living inside a locked room, fearful for the Jews coming and arresting them and doing to them what they had done for Jesus Christ. And so, that these ladies, boldly and courageously, as motivated by their love, Go to that tomb early in the morning. Most likely, and again, the the four gospel accounts are, are uh, a bit difficult to harmonize, but but they can. Not everybody harmonizes them uh, the same. But again, the harmony of these gospel accounts tells us, again, of their truthfulness. that They didn't get together and say, let's get our story straight here now, folks. So there's some things that make it kind of difficult to harmonize, but they can be harmonized. I'm, I'm often amazed, and I ran across uh, a note this week concern of, of concern for someone someone I, that I do not know uh that uh, uh raised the issue of the contradictions of scripture and i've heard that phrase for all of my life uh you know okay there's groups of people that say that the bible contradicts themselves the the, the funny thing to me is I, just, I don't think I'm smart enough to recognize those supposed places. I've, as I've read the Bible over the years, uh, it's, it's, it's never occurred to me, well, wait well, wait, a minute, Now over here it says this, and over here it says that. I, I, I'm just not that smart to figure those things out. I guess God's been gracious to me in not giving me a higher IQ. But uh, I get it. There are some difficulties there are some difficulties, and I, I get it as I've studied and studied and studied over the course of the, really the last 30 years, but, uh, but there are no contradictions in the Bible. They harmonize, they complement, and they complete each other. So most likely, as it was dark, Mary got ahead of the other ladies, of which there were probably three or four, maybe five, maybe six that, that aren't, you know, aren't named. But The other ladies were with her, but evidently she arrives there at the tomb and she sees that the tomb is open. Now just think about it for just a minute. That's not what they were expecting. But they also had not made a plan for how the stone was going to be removed so they could enter to do what they had planned to do, which was complete the burial process. Jesus Christ again to continue to anoint his body because evidently what had been done the night before, on a Friday night uh, had been done very hastily so they could complete it before the uh, Sabbath day began and so they hastily buried Jesus put the stone there to seal the tomb and they left and so these ladies go back carrying more spices and to go and minister uh, to Jesus. And so her response at seeing the tomb is open as she leaves. It would seem to me, based on what she says to the disciples here in just a moment, that she left before the other ladies arrived, and those ladies saw the angel, heard the message, and then actually got a word from Jesus Christ as they were leaving to go to tell uh, the disciples. So she comes, and she turns and leaves very quickly, and she goes to find Simon Peter and this other unnamed disciple who we know to be John, the one who writes this uh, gospel, referred to as the one whom Jesus loved. And again, uh, that's not bragging, folks. John is humbled that Jesus Christ could love a man such as him. If we think about the gospel and we think about it with a view toward the reality of our own depravity, our own failure, we too will be amazed that we are a disciple whom Jesus loved. We, our loves, will be humbled by that truth. And so we're told in verse 3 that uh, these disciples take off to go towards the tomb. Peter goes out and they, they run to the tomb. Peter and John go to investigate Mary's claim. Now, One of my favorite preachers is uh, a Scottish man by the name of Alistair Begg. And I wish I could talk like Alistair uh, Begg. Uh, You'd you'd really enjoy uh, that Scottish accent over my Chattooga County accent. But as I listened to his sermons uh, one day last week, he, he chuckled more than once. If you'll note in our text that John likes to point out, and he points it out three or four times, that he beat Peter to the tomb. That, that he must have been a little bit proud of his athletic uh, uh, accomplishment there. Now, some would say it was because Peter was older. Uh, maybe Peter was just pacing himself. Whatever the case, John wants us to know that he was fleeter of foot than, the Pe- than Peter. He may not have been fleeter of tongue than Peter, but he was fleeter of foot. And he beats Peter there. And we're told there in verse 5, that he stoops to look down. Uh, The way these tombs were designed is there was a very small opening uh, to enter uh, the uh, carved-out niche of the tomb. And so you would have to stoop to get in or even stoop to look inside of that tomb. So John arrives and he bends over uh, to take a look uh, into uh, into the tomb. And so... When he looks in in verse 6, uh, or, or when Peter gets there, he simply runs in and goes past, bursts past John and enters the tomb, which seems characteristic of Peter. Uh, John's a little more cautious. He's wanting to take a look, see what's going on. Peter barges in uh, to uh, the room and takes note of it. And it's interesting, and, and this may be a bit of, over-exegesis, uh, sometimes uh, very zealous uh, commentators and preachers and so forth of Scripture uh, like to read too much into sometimes the translations of the words, uh, such as the word love, uh, sometimes agape and phileo and all of these uh, terms. They, you know, people get a lot of mileage out of making distinctions in those terms, and maybe rightly so. But there's actually three different words used here for what these disciples saw. Uh, the first word is the word blepo, which simply can mean kind of to glance. And so they, they, they just physically saw what was in the, the tomb. And then the second time, uh, there's the word thoreo for the, that's translated as saw. And that's the word from which we get the word theory or theorize. And so it's to see and to begin to think about what you're seeing. And then the final word translated "saw" is oreo. And it's the idea of seeing with a certain perception as to what you're seeing. Now again, that may be a bit of over-exegesis. Uh, sometimes that happens. But maybe may be worth noting as they begin to progress uh, in terms of understanding uh, what they are seeing. And so... We're told that they saw the linen cloths lying there and then the face cloth separately. And one thing that we can kind of note as a point of, of contrast. Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. You remember? Lazarus, you and only you, not everybody in there, you. Lazarus, you come out. Now, uh, if, I were, if we were live and I was in my pulpit, I would do my imitation of Lazarus coming out of the tomb uh, with, uh, wrapped up in the, the grave cloths. Uh, but since we're kind of limited here, I'm not, gonna, uh, <laughs> not going to do that for you this morning. But Lazarus was bound by the grave clothes. He had to, Jesus, well, take those things off of him. Unwrap him. He couldn't unwrap himself. Kind of a mummy type of thing what they see in Jesus case is the grave cloths still lying there on the slab so to speak in two two, two pieces the body wrap the head wrap and what they saw was likely these cloths since they didn't have a body inside of them any longer they had just collapsed on themselves And they were lying virtually flat. And the one piece, the body cloth, separated by a small space because the head would have been wrapped in a separate cloth. Some say even somewhat like a turban. And so all of this had collapsed because Jesus had received an incorruptible body, a glorified body, that was not subject to the physical laws that the corruptible body is subject to he passed through those grave cloths and he left them behind there on the tomb and so uh, they saw them left behind and just as another aside here if a grave robber had taken him which is one of the theories uh, for explaining the empty tomb let me assure you of this they would not have left behind those expensive uh, oils and those expensive spices that had been utilized to bury Jesus. They would have taken them, returned to the marketplace with them, and sold them. And so they would have carried Jesus out with all of that stuff intact. But since no one carried Jesus out, he walked out or maybe even just passed through the stone until the just since maybe the angels came in a little bit later and re- rolled the stone away we don't know we're not told that but he certainly would not have had any need of the stone being rolled back for him the need for the stone to be rolled back was because so the disciples and the women could look inside and see that Jesus was no longer in that tomb and so we're told they look and they see and they contemplate now I'm going to go off on, on a, a bit of a a limb here, I've, I've told you before when I'm the only person that thinks something there's a real high percentage that I'm going to be wrong and I, I may be here I say this with a, a great deal of humility uh, but in verse 8 uh, we're told that uh, the other disciple, John uh, who got to the tomb first, again he doesn't want us to forget he won the foot race, okay don't, don't forget that folks, I was there first he went in And he saw, he oreo, he saw and believed. Now my question is, what and how much did he believe? Because we have an explanatory note there in verse 9. For as of yet, they, the disciples, did not understand the scripture that that he must rise from the dead. And so... While, again, to my knowledge, uh, I surveyed a number of commentaries this week. Everybody says, well, that's the moment in which they believed in the resurrection. Maybe it was. But I find it strange that there would be this note, well, they did not understand the scripture, so they still really didn't understand the resurrection. What they believed was the message of the women that his body wasn't there. They believed that. Jesus was not in the tomb. And they're perplexed by it, and I find it very strange that they say, well, let's go home. If Jesus was raised from the dead, or if they believe that Jesus was raised from the dead, well, we're just going to go home. Okay, he's not here. There's nothing to be done here. Kind of interesting, at least, to me, in my very strange way of thinking about things. And so, uh, they go home with the knowledge Jesus is not in the tomb. They may be a bit perplexed about the presence of the grave cloths, but nonetheless, they go home. Maybe they're believing that he's been raised from the dead, but certainly they're believing the report of the women, or the woman, that they thought was foolishness at first. Now, the story continues here in verse 11, because Jesus is going to now appear to the followers he has already i think if we kind of harmonize the accounts appeared to the later arriving women and told them go tell the disciples and so whether maybe the there were multiple pathways that would lead to the garden or to the tomb and so uh, they took different routes to and from the entrance to the tomb but evidently Uh, The disciples and Mary did not meet the other party of ladies that would have been leaving the tomb to go find the other disciples. But we're told they do go and tell the disciples this message, Jesus has been raised from the dead. Okay? So, now, Mary is ready uh, to, uh, uh, to, to leave the tomb. She is weeping because, now why is she weeping? Because she still doesn't quite get it she's still trying to put all the pieces together, and she as she was crying, she looks into the tomb, verse eleven, and she sees these two angels they're sitting in in the place where uh, Jesus had been laid. And some suggest there's a bit of imagery going on there that uh, the mercy seat, the Ark of the Covenant, was actually kind of over uh, uh, surrounded. Uh, by these metal cherubim that uh, kind of overarched over that mercy seat. I don't know if there's some imagery there or not that may be a bit far-fetched. Again, she saw two angels dressed in white. They speak to her, verse 13. They ask her the question, Why are you weeping? Her reply is, They have taken my Lord away. Now, note, again, if she is fully attuned... To the fact that Jesus has been raised from the dead. Then she'd say. Jesus has been raised from the dead. We're just going to wait to see him here. Because he'll he'll come see us soon. But I, I think the thing that they still are thinking. He's not in the tomb. Someone has taken him. And so. Having said this. She turned around. And she saw Jesus standing there. But she didn't know it was Jesus. Now. We know that Luke gives an account of Jesus appearing on this same day to disciples walking on the Emmaus Road, and they don't recognize him for a time. In fact, they, come, they, take him, they walk with him quite a ways, and they invite him into their home, and they begin to eat dinner together, and when Jesus breaks the bread, for some reason he becomes, it becomes apparent that it is indeed Jesus. There are a number of ways to explain this. I'm really not going to get into that. Uh, it could have been very easily the sun was rising and Jesus was standing with his back to the sun. She's looking out from inside the tomb and all she sees is a silhouette. could be as simple as that. I don't know. But she begins to quiz him. After Well, first she asks him, or, or Jesus asks her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Now, Jesus wants to elicit a response does he know what's going on here well obviously he does but he questions her for the purpose of instructing her causing her uh to think and so she thinks he's the gardener and her address to him is sir if you've carried him away tell me where you've laid him and i will take him away now jesus let's just assume jesus weighed 150 pounds and maybe he made 130 may weigh 170 i don't know he weighed 150 pounds, he was wrapped in uh, 75 pounds of, 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 uh, of, of spices and cloths and so forth. And so this little lady is going to go move Jesus' body. Again, she's somewhat delirious, I think, still. And so Jesus speaks to her again in verse 16. Jesus said to her, Mary. Now, in saying the name mary and hearing his voice and that personal address she realizes who it is that speaks i don't know if it was it could be any a number of things i ran into a, an old teacher from my high school at a funeral back uh, earlier this year and uh, she told me said i didn't recognize you until i heard your voice now I don't know what that says about my voice. I don't know if it was the volume, or the uh, uh, the, the North Georgia uh, accent, or what. But that that's what she uh, what she said. Uh, I can't imagine she would think I'd changed in anything since uh, I was in high school. But uh, uh, you know, I've seen you know there's a big Facebook thing, people posting their graduation pictures. And I want to tell you that everybody, y'all have changed a lot. You really have. Uh, I'm not going to say if it was for the better or for the worse, but you changed a lot. Me, not so much. But I, I can't find my high school pictures, so I probably won't be doing that. Jesus says to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father. What great good news. We're still family. We still have the same heavenly father you go report this good news to them now again among the strange things that i find in this text there in verse 17 you would think that jesus would want to grab her and and hug her kind of reminds me of jane knight she wants a big hug i I know she's probably uh, having the dt's right now because she's not getting her her requisite weekly hugs okay and so I understand that, and so uh, here at North Clay, we tend to be a bunch of huggers, in fact, a lot of hugging going on, but Jesus says, "No, nah, no, nah. and that just seems so very cold Here's someone that has grieved and she 's demonstrated her love by getting out before daylight and, and, and being uh, courageous, and that you know people associated with him might not uh, be viewed very positively by the Jews or the Romans. And so she goes to him, and he's not willing to let her hug him for an extended period of time. But his explanation is, I have not yet ascended to my Father, and to your Father, and to my God, and to your God. And so, I don't know if Jesus is thinking of the urgency of the moment, and I'm going to go. Some would even say that he's been raised but not yet ascended, that he has not presented his blood inside the heavenly holy of holies. I'm not sure that that's the answer. My my suspicion is that upon his death, the blood was presented and accepted. But I think this may get at it a, a bit. Jesus has engaged in a long discourse. You can go all the way back to chapter 14 about the coming of the Holy Spirit about the advocate, the comforter, the paraclete, the the one that's going to be sent from uh, the Father. And so Jesus explains that it's crucial that I go, that I ascend, that I'm not going to be with you anymore, because when I go... I'm going to send. And so maybe the idea is this: I haven't gone and reached that final place in which I will reside at the right hand of the Father, and I will live to intercede, and the Holy Spirit will be doing His work in the world, and you will gain illumination, and you'll understand it all. We're not to that point yet. And so don't cling to me because I can't stay. I've got other work that's got to be done. I can't stay. Don't don't root your hope in me being physically present because I'm going to go away again. But as he told them previously, it's going to be far better. It's going to be far better. You're going to do greater things than the things I've done. Namely, preach the gospel and the Spirit's going to work and people are going to be saved in greater numbers than Jesus saw in his own earthly ministry. So, Mary sees Jesus and she's ready to go back to the disciples. And then Jesus, in verse 19, we're told He appears to these disciples. They've already heard the message of He's not here. They've already heard the reason He's not there is that the angels explained He's been raised from the dead and then that Jesus had appeared to these ladies. They have gone and told Jesus has been raised. But still... They're huddled up. They're still concerned. They still feel like that both Romans and Jews are a threat to them. They don't know what to make of it. And the reason they don't fully understand is the fullness of the Spirit has not come upon them as He will on the day of Pentecost. And so they're huddled up, and we're told that inside this room in which there are locked doors that Jesus came and stood among them. We're not told that Jesus came and knocked on the door, Guys, it's me, let me in. We're told they're sitting there doing whatever they were doing, and all of a sudden they find that Jesus is standing among them. Again, much as I said about His passing through the grave clothes, uh, he, because of the nature of the resurrected body, Not being subject to the normative rules of of time and space and matter. He simply passed through those walls. And so, Jesus' first words to them is, Peace be with you. We love to point out the failures of the Apostle Peter. And they were colossal. But none of the other disciples were any better. They had all scattered. They were all frightened. It's just Peter had a great love of keeping his foot placed squarely in his mouth. And so he said way too much and tried to do way too much by splitting the high priest's servant's head with the sword. But uh, they, they were all guilty of abandoning Jesus in that time of need. And so he basically says to them, Guys, I'm not mad. Guys, I'm not mad at you. I forgive you. We're at peace with one another. Yes, you failed, but that was a part of the plan that God had set in place and put in motion since before the world was created. That you would fail because each and every one of you, just like Peter, you were relying upon your own supposed strength. And I want you to understand that you have none. You have no strength apart from me. You have no courage. You have no boldness. You have no hope apart from me. And you needed to really learn that lesson. And so peace be with you. And so he demonstrates to them him, them the, the scars from his crucifixion. He shows them that indeed, his body is different, but is somewhat like the body he had here on Earth. It, it, even in his glorified state, he bears the scars of our redemption. My suspicion, I do not know this, but as we rejoice in heaven, as we see our Lord Jesus Christ, we may, at least on occasion, see the scars. And we'll be reminded of the cost and the glory and the beauty of our salvation. That the reason that we're in heaven is because Jesus bore the wrath of God On the cross at Calvary. Because he was marred and scarred. For our redemption. And so. After again saying to them. Peace be with you. As the father has sent me. Even so I'm sending you. Now I want to say. uh, Just as a point of application. That is a point of application. For everyone who names the name of Christ. That he is sending us. Into the world in which the world is typically hostile to this message of a resurrected Christ but we're to go and we're to tell we are on a mission with the authority of the truth of the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit to go tell others this great good news and then upon giving them this charge he says receive the Holy Spirit he breathes upon them And he says, receive the Holy Spirit. Again, out of the many things that are enigmatic about this text, that's one of them. I don't know to what degree they received the Spirit at at this time in His fullness. Because they still, and, and we'll see next week in chapter 21, they're still pretty confused. They're still pretty befuddled about the implications and the application of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I don't think they're going to get it fully until the day of Pentecost, because that's when the Spirit comes fully upon us. And so, while we love to be uh, critical and 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 kind of uh, and even make jokes about the disciples and their failure, to whatever degree, to whatever degree, that we understand the truth of the gospel that we understand the doctrines of the Bible and we should attempt to, we should work hard to understand them. It is a gift of God's grace through the work of His Spirit. And certainly in, its, in their saving merit, it is all a work of God's grace. And so, uh, then Jesus, upon making this statement regarding the, the work of the Holy Spirit, verse 23, He reminds them, that if you forgive the sins of any, they, will, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Again, a very difficult passage, a very difficult verse to translate. Is he, is he vesting in these disciples and then maybe even by extension, vesting in the disciples who will follow these original disciples, the ability to absolve people of their sin? May, may we pronounce that people are forgiven of their sins with authority, with certainty. And I would say to that I believe it is an authority that is, accompanies the gospel. I may say, and any believer may say to any other individual, if you repent of your sins, if you are trusting in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, your sins are forgiven. Just as, as it is certain that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, it is certain that your sins are forgiven. And so we pronounce forgiveness on the basis not of our authority but of the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ. The power and authority He demonstrated by overcoming that tomb, that grave, death, and Satan himself when he was raised from the dead. And so Jesus appears first to Mary, uh, then to the disciples, and then we're told that He's going to appear to Thomas poor old Thomas he he really gets a, he has gets a hard time of it we often refer to him and I can remember him as a child being referred to as doubting Thomas and so he tells them he's not he's not with them when Jesus appears uh immediately on the day of his resurrection to them in this locked room and so evidently they tell him about this and he says to them if I don't see the evidence If I don't see the hands and the mark of the nails and and place my finger in the mark of the nails, I will never believe. It's a dogged unbelief, seemingly. It is a harsh unbelief. I have trusted. I've gotten my hopes up in this guy. I thought we were going to usher in the kingdom. And he gets killed. And I'm not going to be misled again. i got to have proof. It's interesting since this is in John's gospel. In John's epistle he makes the point that which our eyes have seen and our hands have touched and felt. He he wants everybody to know that, that Jesus was real flesh and blood. He was a real man before his death and after his death. And so on the next appearance to the disciples, once again, they're gathered uh, together. And Jesus appears to them. And because He's God, He's omniscient, you, you, he, put, he, he puts His finger right on the problem so Thomas can put his finger on his problem. And so, He invites him there in Verse 27, Jesus appears and uh, evidently passing through the walls of the room they're in because the doors are locked. doesn't say anything about them opening those doors and inviting him in. He says to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve. Do not persist in this state of unbelief. But you believe. Thomas believes. Verse 28, My Lord and my God, you are indeed my resurrected Savior. You're the one that God has promised. And in you, I will believe. There's a bit of a criticism here, I think, from Jesus. You believe because you've seen me. And that's good. I'm glad. I'm glad that that the the basis of your doubt has been removed. And I'm glad you're believing. and, And that's a blessed thing. You had the privilege of seeing me. Now, I'm going to stop here. And let me just say this once again. Miracles never have been and never will be a basis for faith. Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead and you remember Caiaphas? He's the one that said it's better that one man die. We've got to kill this guy. A miracle in and of itself does not bring someone to saving faith. It is the work, and always has been the work, of the Word of God, the imperishable seed, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and the work of the Spirit to raise a dead man's heart so that they will believe. So it was still a work of the Spirit. Because listen, a skeptic will always be a skeptic. One of the problems, and we talk about apologetics a lot, and I think there's a place for them at times, But until a person's heart is is worked over and, and made alive by the work of the Spirit, they'll always find an excuse. They'll always find a way to discount any argument for the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. No matter how logical, how scientifically true, how philosophically true it holds together, they will always find a way to dismiss it except for the work of God's Holy Spirit in their life. And so Jesus said, hey, it's great you believe, but let me tell you this. There are going to be people who haven't seen this and they're still going to believe. You know why? Because greater works than these you're going to do. You're going to go preach the gospel and I'm not going to be around physically. They're not going to see me and I'm not going to authenticate your works with miracles all the time. I'm just going to leave it to the work of the Spirit and the power of the Word of God and there are going to be people, there are going to be millions of people, there are going to be people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. They're going to hear this. I'm going to save them and they're going to be in heaven with me forever. They're going to gather around my throne and they're going to praise me as the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Lamb who was slain. That's a great thing. That's a great thing. And so, Jesus appears to his followers on that first Easter Sunday. And they were changed forever. Well, Let's look at the final issue here. Verse 30 and 31. The story, or his story, is still relevant. It's relevant because it's true. Now, And truth is always relevant. Remember, truth is that which conforms to reality. Okay? Did Jesus walk out of a grave? Yes, He did. And I believe it's demonstrably true. I believe there's no other explanation. There's no other explanation that holds water, that makes sense, that holds together, other than this. Jesus was raised from the dead. You tell me, well, He just seemed to be dead. He swooned. What? You're telling me that beaten up and crucified man pushed that big rock out of the way and then uh, these disciples conspired together to keep that story alive or, or the disciples just came and stole the body? And, and, and we're just going to tell, tell this myth that, that Jesus rose from the dead and, and we're going to lose everything because of it. We're going to be persecuted because of it. And every one of them held, held fast to that truth and that Jesus appeared to 500 witnesses and none of them ever, ever betrayed the truth of the resurrected Jesus Christ. No way. I, I mentioned this week, and I've mentioned it probably at least every other Easter since I read this. Many of you may remember Chuck Colson. Chuck Colson was one of Richard Nixon's. Uh, You younger people, Google Richard Nixon. He was actually a president of the United States uh, many, many years ago. But he and his henchmen were involved in something called Watergate. One of his uh, officials was a man named Charles Colson. And he went to jail for his role in Watergate. But while in jail, God saved him. And reflecting on all of that and comparing it to this, he says, You know what? We in Nixon's White House, we were smart and we were tough and we had all the power we needed. All we had to do was keep our mouths shut and keep the story straight and we would have hunkered down and we would have survived the whole thing. Nixon would have served out his presidency. And so what you're telling me is the most intelligent and powerful men in the world can't keep a story together for three months, but you're telling me that these 11 peasant men made something up, said we're going, to, we're going to stick to this story for the rest of their lives. They had no wealth. They had no power. They were persecuted. They were, they, their families betrayed them. Their, their friends uh, persecuted them. And they stuck to the story until the day of their death. No way, no how, no, it is not possible. Jesus was raised from the dead. So the truth is still relevant because it's true. Because it's true. And so, John tells us that his gospel is true, but it's not exhaustive. We don't know everything about what Jesus did in his incarnation. We don't know everything that he did after his resurrection. But we know enough to accomplish John's purpose for writing. Why did he write it? Well, verse 31. I've written what I've written. I've selected my material. I've organized it into a cohesive narrative for a particular purpose. That is that you... You, those of you listening to me today, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, that He is the Son of God, and that by believing these things, you may have life in His name. That was His purpose. That's the purpose for me standing here today. That's the purpose for other men throughout the world standing in similar places. And we've been standing in these similar places for 2,000 years telling this same story. There is nothing unique about the Easter story. We've been telling the same story for 2,000 years. That God raised His crucified Son from the dead. That God placed His stamp of approval on the life and the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. That He had accomplished exactly what God had ordained He would. That He would suffer in our place. That He would be our substitute. That He would pay the penalty for our sin. And John says that I have written this so that it may be proclaimed, so that faith may come by hearing, and hearing by the word of God, that we may confess with our mouth Jesus as Lord, and believe in our hearts that God has raised Him from the dead, and through that we shall be saved. That's John's purpose. This gospel, this good news, great good news, Jesus has been raised from the dead. It could be that this week, or next week, or if Maybe shortly into the future, we may see a headline. Well, maybe not a headline. We don't have a a newspaper here in Birmingham, Alabama, so we don't know what headlines are anymore. But maybe we'll hear a broadcast. There's good news. We have discovered a cure. We have discovered a vaccine for the coronavirus. And buddy, there would be a buzz. People would be talking about it. Let me tell you this. Any vaccine and any treatment for the coronavirus, it may cure you the virus, but it will not cure your mortality. That one day you will die. There is better good news. There is a more important good news as to why it's not splattered on the front page of every newspaper in the country every day that He's not here. He's arisen. He's alive. That is the good news. There is salvation in the name of our resurrected Lord. And so... This gospel, this good news, this story—that is, at some level—is so simple. We 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 want to make things so complex. Are are there? Can I prove to to you beyond a shadow of a doubt, beyond a reasonable thinker, or for a reasonable thinker, that Jesus was raised from it? Yeah, I think I can. Now let me say—I said—notice the word "reasonable thinker." There's some of you that don't even think you exist. Much less me exist. I can't help you there. Okay? I can't help you there. Okay? But if you think reasonably and think logically about the the nature of time and space and history and all these things, there was a Jesus that God raised from the dead. Okay? And we can argue all about that. But here's the thing. What I need to tell you is that truth. Not argue for it. Just tell you about it and trust that it is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe that that imperishable seed of the new birth will be fertilized by the work of the Holy Spirit and he will bring that individual to salvation I don't have to apologize for it I don't even have to tie it up in a nice neat little package for you Uh, I've laughed many times I heard a pastor say one time he worked all week and planned and prayed and got prepared and said then he took all that and tried to tie a big bow on it let me tell you something I've never tried to tie a big bow on it I give it to you as it is here it is This is the truth. This is God's power being proclaimed to you for your salvation. And I pray that you hear and that you believe that this is the gospel. This is the good news. This is why we can celebrate. This is why there's an Easter. And so, just as He told those disciples, just go tell folks about it. Just go tell folks this great truth. That indeed, there is hope. There's so many things about life that is ultimately hopeless. Let me tell you this. None of you are going to get out of this situation alive. You may not get the coronavirus. You may survive tonight's bad weather. You may survive a lot of things in the days ahead, but you will not get out of this life alive. That's pretty hopeless. That's, That's pretty bad news in my book. But Let me tell you this. Jesus Christ, the resurrected Savior, is still saving all who believe. Every single one of them. In fact, in John's Gospel, Jesus says, you know, all the Father gives to me, they're going to come to me. And then, I'm going to raise them up on the last day. I'm going to get them, I'm going to keep them. I'm the good shepherd, I know my sheep. I'm going to lay down my life for them, and I'm going to take it back up again. And no one's going to take my life for it. I'm laying it down willingly. But I know those sheep, and they hear my voice. And no one, no way, no how is ever going to snatch them out of my hand. That's the Jesus that we celebrate on this Easter. Pray with me. Father, thank you for your word, for your truth, for the reality of your son's resurrection. Oh, we thank You for that power that was demonstrated in Him. That power to defeat death, but the power to forgive our sins. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here that has heard this message today, or maybe maybe they'd hear it later, maybe even years from now they would hear this message. God, I pray that You'd save them. You would save them by Your grace and for Your own glory through the work of Your Son, Jesus Christ. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.